Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. There's that wonderful music as it fades into the back, and you are on 3RRR. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. And I'm Farm. Good morning. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's so summery. <laughs> yeah. I just am loving it. It is really, really beautiful. Don't, don't, don't be fooled. I'm, I'm going to give you a weather report. Yeah, no, you're going to bring us back to reality, <laughs> yeah. aren't you, later? Hey, um, and of course, if you're waking up going, oh, no, is that groggy? And I'm like, what, huh? Yeah, the clocks, they went forward last night. So now it's having started today. Happy spring. Is it spring? Uh, wasn't it spring it's last a, month? I don't know. It doesn't make it sense. Doesn't, doesn't. We need we need the Wurundjeri six seasons. Yeah, we here. do, don't yeah, we? Yeah, that's we what really we need do. to implement. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we're now into the second month of spring. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he says, showing his ability to understand the whole <clears throat> thing that he learned in primary school. Um, we got a very big show. We got all kinds of stuff happening. Yeah, we, we got do. lots of news to catch up yep. on. We're going to play all the music is inspired by Indigenous Australia today um, because in two weeks' time we get to make a choice and let's make the right one. Um, and then... We've got to uh, cross over to Beach Patrol Australia. We've got uh, Ross and Ramona Hedefin on the line and uh, we'll be catching up about what Beach Patrol's been up to and uh, what some of the trends in their uh, litter research are I was showing. going to say, so that's litter collection. That's mm-hmm. not Baywatch type Beach no, Patrol. No, no, no. So Beach Patrol, Beach Patrol are the guys who um, go by postcode and you'll see them on Sunday mornings cleaning up the beach in their colourful T-shirts. Brilliant, brilliant. I'm really interested to hear, hear the latest. One. And then we're going to talk to Andrea Rowe, who is a local children's author, award-winning local children's author. From the Mornington from Peninsula. From the Peninsula. Um, and, and, and her latest book's coming out, and she's just won, like, I don't know how many, 94 new awards. Just remarkable, <laughs> just keeps, keeps you know, kind of... She's pretty amazing. Incredible. Um, and so, um, should we do that weather? Like, I kind of feel like... Uh, I feel like a Debbie Downer for doing it. But, yeah, all right, fine. Uh, Before we do, can I just start about the weather where I was? So I was yeah. in, in, in far north Queensland yesterday and we got on plane a plane in shorts and, and T-shirts and got off plane in shorts and T-shirts at about 7.30 last night and it was warmer in Melbourne <laughs> than it was when we got on the plane in Townsville. Yeah, that's very unusual. Mm. So today we've got a top of 22 degrees, so it's still pretty nice, uh, partly cloudy. Mm. And then we're going to get a slight chance of a shower about the Dandenongs in the southeast. Um, but that's going to be clearing in the afternoon. Today? Yeah, today. And then the oh. winds are going to pick up <gasps> north-northwesterly 30 to 45 k's an hour with some gusts. Ooh. And then it's shifting southwesterly late this morning. So, uh, And then go- coming uh. a little bit more moderate in the afternoon than southeasterly 15 to 20 k's in the evening. So, yeah, plan your dive that's Cooler. That's kind of cooler too, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, of course you've all fallen for Victoria's fake spring, just like we thought we would. <laughs> like, like uh, what was it, a week, was it? Yeah, it was yeah, a week right. of beautiful weather. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the rest of the week it will be pretty much going down to a top of 13 degrees on Friday. Oh, and Wednesday, on. Wednesday we can expect 10 to 35 millimetres of rain. <laughs> 
So don your snorkel when you walk to your tram to get to work. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but for today, we still have a beautiful day. We're going to catch up with Myra Kelly as well about mm. uh, the beach repo- uh, the uh, dive report because she's in Port C at the moment. Um, so high tide at Port Phillip Heads is uh, around 2 p.m. today. Next low will be around 8 p.m. And uh, the EPA beach report for water quality says it is good to go for oh. all beaches. So get oh. in the water while you can. Yeah, while you can. Yeah, after yeah. 35 millimeters of rain this week, uh, yeah. stay out of the water, people. Yeah, that's true, actually. It's probably, well, luckily it's going to be like 13 yeah. you know, the next day. So who wants to get in the water? Anyway? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's just remarkable. Wasn't it 29? Was it 29 yesterday? Yesterday, yeah. And it's going to be 13. I love yep. it. I mean, yep. this is why we love Melbourne, really, isn't Melbourne it? Melbourne fake spring strikes again. Ay, 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 Love it, love it. Triple R. We've got this choice in 13 days, and it's one of those moments where, um, you know, we get to decide what kind of a country we want to live in. So, before we chat about this, I'm going to play the kind of generous offer that we've been made by Indigenous Australia, and then we're going to talk about some news and come back and chat about other stuff. We, gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached there too, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? The peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years. With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for our future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people, 
and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth telling about our history. In 1967 we were counted. In 2017 we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Oh, wow. I'm going to fade out the oils. I mean, it is, it's fantastic. The rest of that track is wonderful. Um, that was the Uluru Statement of the Heart. That's the, what is it, 426 words of generosity that have been presented to us um, as, as Australians to think about. And, and the first step of that, of course, as... Um, as uh, I, I, I couldn't pick all the voices, but towards the end there, one, one of those voices, one of those wonderful, very brilliant Indigenous Australians said, we seek to be heard. And that's what the voice is. And so um, you're on Radio Marinara on 3RRR. It's about 30 minutes past nine. And the first bit of news that we're going to talk about um, from, uh, is, is, is just that. Like in two weeks' time, in 13 days, most of us <laughs> get to vote. <laughs> I'm <and> jealous. <laughs> and we get to, to make a decision. And, uh, and I just think it's a really important one. And I think that it's been um, – that just the thing that stood out for me was there were two speeches made – was it last week? At the press club, Warren Mundine spoke on one day and then the next day Noel Pearson spoke. And the difference between the language in it was remarkable. And the standout kind of quote from Warren Mundine was, which I found really astonishing, was that the Indigenous voice to Parliament is a, de- is, is a declaration of war. Which I just thought was... Oh and he's God. saying, like, no, because of that. I'm just going to go, well, I think that oh. might be a little bit over the top. But anyway... That's like hyper-colonialism all over again, That's isn't it? Like war and like... language of being against rather than being together. And then Noel Pearson stood up and spoke and all he talked about was love and generosity. Yeah. And that comparison really struck me. And so, anyway, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about this and I just think, and obviously, you know, everyone will know that my view is that we vote yes and we vote yes resoundingly and um, loudly and that we should make it very clear. Um, and the, the, this whole thing about if you don't know, vote. No, no, if you don't know, find out. No, and that's, that's right. Do a little bit of education, right? Because I, I don't have voting rights in Australia because I'm not a citizen. I'm mm. a permanent resident. And so... I've been just handing out those little booklets that mm-hmm. you see everywhere mm-hmm. about, and it explains why we should vote yes. So if you, you know, that's kind of like my contribution because I can't vote myself. So if you don't know exactly what is going on, inform yourself. Totally. Don't be a blind voter totally. and vote no because you don't know what's going on. 
And and oh, look, I think that's absolutely it. And then the cut through thing for me was listening to a brilliant speech from a very um, credentialed Indigenous um, bureaucrat, actually. Um, um, I'm not sure they're an elder, but but a, bit, but a bureaucrat. And they made the point that the the country has had all these referendums, and there's two kinds. There's like the it's almost like the administrative kind, you know, like the, do we want the high court judges to retire at the age of 70 kind of, you know, that. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, of course, yeah, sure, we will. There's like administrative tweaks, you know, like and do we want to change this name of this in the act, you know, whatever. And then there's the ones that are about shaping the country and there's only been a few of them. There was the ones, the ones straight after the war that said, do we want a social security system? And big yes. And then there was the one in 67. Do we want to count Indigenous Australians in the, in the census? And there was a resounding yes. And this is another one of those ones. This is the ones where this is not administrative. This is about what kind of country we want to live in. Do we want to live in a country that actually listens to Indigenous people, to the first people of this country? Yeah, that's, that's it. Right. That's and, the choice. And that's it. We've been saying that we want to make repairs and all that sort of thing, but that comes with action. It comes with real meaningful action. You can't just say, like, oh, we're going to make this country better for everyone. You know, you've got to actually take the actions, and this is a huge step. And um, for all those who think, oh, well, you know, there's the Constitution, it's this kind of stunning document, I'd suggest having a read of it. <laughs> It's an appalling <laughs> representation of the time it was written. Mm. And it was written in 19, you know, 1890s and it was all about states wanting to not lose any power to a federal entity and it's all – the language is very – it's not the kind of thing you'd ever write today. So this, this kind of – you know, the way the Americans hold their constitution is close to their heart. Ours is literally a legal document and, 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 and the way it's written and the acts that support it suggest that, the, um, that, that only a Catholic – um, born of a German prince, princess, could be the head of state. If you trace back <laughs> through all the documents, it's just, you know, it's, it's archaic, it's bizarre. Wow, yeah. Or a non-Catholic, I beg your pardon, a non-Catholic. Oh, non-Catholic, I was going to say, Catherine yeah. of whatever it was, you know, where, when that, where Hanover, Catherine of Hanover or whatever it was. You know, like if you trace it all back. Until we made that little um, that thing in the eighties or nineties, that's what it was. You know, like just crazy archaic stuff. So don't stand behind the constitution as this immovable object. It's not. It changes. We change. It becomes what we want to become. Hey, anyway, that's it. <laughs> Vote yes. Other news. Yeah, so I came across a, a really, really lovely, lovely uh, news article. Um, Somebody in, from the Project SETI team in oh, yeah. uh, Dominica, uh, under the uh, crew led by uh, biology lead Shane Garrow, they have recorded being uh, uh, recorded a sperm whale being born. Oh, wow! Yeah, and it's the first recorded birth since 1986 because it's really obviously really hard to be there at the right at time. Exactly the right moment. And yeah, yeah. you know there were two research boats going out, and they were following. They had the hydrophones, they had the drones, everything. They were How just doing a know? routine. Oh, well, that's they a didn't. Routine. Right, they right. didn't know. So they they were just doing a routine uh, checkup because there's about 500 sperm whales that live in that area. This is in the Caribbean, mm. and they and Project SETI tracks them. So it was kind of like a a routine thing where they were um, they're on this mission to record uh, whale language mm-hmm. and then decoding all of the um, what they call the codas or the clicks mm-hmm. um, so that that you know eventually people will be able to speak whale not like Dory in Finding Nemo <laughs> but actual whale. Um, and so it's an amazing amazing project and uh, all of a sudden they're tracking this pod and all of a sudden they went extremely quiet. 
So there's 11 sperm whales at the surface, which yeah. is rare yeah. because usually they only surface in pairs. Yeah. All of a sudden, there's 11 whales at the surface and everybody is quiet. Wow. No codas, no clicks. And turns out they were giving birth. The mother so was giving the birth. birth. Giving birth is like a community activity. It is because wow. everybody is quiet because if, if you get hunted by orcas, uh-huh. they find you yeah, by yeah, your yeah, sound, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and so course. you've got to be super quiet because if you're giving birth, that's the yeah. most vulnerable you're ever going to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. They have to be at the surface for it because they're, you know, they're air-breathing mammals. Um, and so they filmed the mother giving birth to the calf and the other, the other uh, whales, they were f- kind of forming a raft and they were keeping the baby up. Uh, so it could breathe because wow. when they come out of the uterus, they're all folded. Their tail is oh, folded wow, up. Really? So they literally have to unfold Unfold, over unfurl. a few wow. hours, unfurl over a few hours, like a beautiful, very heavy flower. Yeah, large, <laughs> like, like bus size, yeah, like a small a bus vehicle size, size, size that's right, flower. A car size flower uh, to unfurl and, oh, wow. um, yeah, and, and, and breathe its first breaths. Uh, and they were able to record the entire thing, which is astounding. Uh, so National Geographic uh, did an article on it. Um, How fantastic. It was uh, somewhere at the start of July that the, the calf was born. Um, they have a gestation period of 18 months as well, which is the longest of all of the, yeah, wow. all of the creatures on Earth. So it's, uh, it's quite astounding. That's, is that, so that's the longest of all the whales too, the uh, sperm yes, whales? Yes, yeah, yes, wow. yes. Yeah. So it's, it's really, yeah, really amazing. And, um, that's very cool. Yeah, and what I also really like about that project, apart from you know, them recording the birth, is that they're, they're recording all of that all the- language and they're, they're also starting to look at culture. In yeah, whales. Right. Yeah, just yeah, like yeah, orcas yeah. have culture yeah, and elephants yes. have cultures, yeah. you know, between the different pods and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're they're starting to really look at culture in whales, and you know, hopefully, using it to, you know, as like an advertisement for people to really want to protect yeah. the whales yeah, because yeah. you know the more yeah. something looks and lives like us the easier yeah. it is for us to yeah, identify with them oh. yeah isn't it funny though we don't we don't ever so we learn so much about these things from a scientific perspective um but the minute that we but we do it from being human yeah and the minute that we take off our being human and try and look at it from within the context of just the data input just the oh oh that looks a lot like culture. Yeah. If you think about that just as an input and you don't think about that as us being better, yeah. then, yeah, isn't that interesting? I so just, the more that we stop looking at them as humans, we start to see more of what we see as making us humans acting out in these these different species. Yeah, and what, I, what I really like is watching how science is evolving as well because we started with the Cartesian model where animals were just mindless and yeah. feelingless automatrons and we did horrible, horrible mm. experiments on them while they were still alive because we just got it in our heads that they don't have feelings. Mm. And you know, and now you see the evolution where actually we are starting to open up to more possibilities. Like, oh, could we actually, could they actually be more you know, well, like us with each other. and like us mm. than we think they are. Mm-hmm. And so now we are actually, as scientists, we are opening up the possibility of animals having culture. 
after we mm. understood that they have feelings yeah. and, and they have consciousness and, all those things, yeah. and that so sort of thing. a century ago we worked out that, that, that there's a thing called behaviour. Yeah, you know, and then have, there yeah. was consciousness, yeah. right? So there's a beautiful evolution in, in science where we are starting to attribute uh, actual, you know, like sentience to mm. the world that's other than human. And you see Gosh. that back in science and yeah. it's a beautiful thing. Haven't we got philosophical on a daylight savings <laughs> morning at yeah, 22 morning on minutes past sun- Sunday morning? <laughs> <laughs> hey, now have you got another quick one? I do, I do. So there's a, a new study involving scientists from um, uh, Professor Ruth Smith Streit's research group at Keele University, uh, and they have discovered a microorganism from the deep sea that can uh, produce uh, an enzyme called PET or PET46 that can cut PET, so plastic <laughs> molecules, uh, and this is quite astounding because. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yes, exactly. So we already know there are enzymes that what? can do it, that can cut plastic. In the deep sea. Um, is it near a seep? Is it near a – like I'm trying to work out how that would evolve. Is it an accident or is it because it's near a kind of a, a, a hydrocarbon seep, like yeah. an oil seep, and though therefore it's going to break down those products? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. Like how The article didn't say that, but it, the – so far, we've only ever had uh, PET-cutting enzymes from bacteria and fungi, hmm. right? But these, this is a whole different ballgame because mm. these microorganisms are, are from the Archaea and they are the guys who live down there mm. on the, uh, you know, around the black uh, thermal vents and this really, That's really inhospitable, yeah, yeah, yeah. non-oxygen-bearing environments. Th- and full of hydrocarbons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, right. they cut so that's why they've got it. Wow. Yeah, and what's amazing about this particular enzyme, uh, PET46, is that it doesn't only cut the really long plastic polymers, mm-hmm. but it also cuts the short ones that are known as oligomers. So usually an enzyme does either or. Right. But these guys okay. can basically cut everything down and it wow. means that degradation of plastic can be continuous over time. How extraordinary. That's going to be so interesting because like, we've built this world in which plastic is, is so indispensable in so many ways. Imagine if the environment, imagine if there's something suddenly, I mean, we want something that will break it down. Yeah. But imagine what we're going to have to think about and maybe not use pieces of, you know, hydrocarbons to store everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Changes the world, doesn't it? (laughs) Hey, thank you. That is awesome. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. We welcome Myra Kelly to the airwaves. Hey, Myra. Good morning, team. How are you all? Yeah, pretty good, Myra. Good. And uh, I believe you are at Portsea this morning. I am at Portsea down here this morning, watching the activity of people and waiting for the sun to come out. Uh, it's a little bit bumpy down here this morning, but it's one of those days that you sort of uh, watch the weather closely and uh, you've got to take a chance and never know what you might end up with. Yeah, I saw the weather <laughs> report this morning. I'm like, oh, gusts of wind and then no wind and then rain and then maybe not rain. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, we're hoping, um, you know, there's a 1.4 metre a one point four metre swell at the moment out Ooh. the back, but we're on an incoming tide. So we had some really great water down here yesterday. It was about 10 metres plus biz, and it was clean, clean water. So we're hoping on the, uh, the incoming tide that we might get the, uh, the great visibility that's been um, getting had by the boat dive out through the heads this week. Yeah, beautiful. And uh, do you have any recommendations on timing today of when people should be in <laughs> to and, avoid. and out yeah. of the water? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Look, as I said, we're, we're on an incoming at the moment. I think high tide's at around about 2 o'clock, so I'd, I'd probably be looking at try, try, trying to get in this morning if you can. As we headed down, we checked out Rye and Blair Gowrie. Um, 
Rye was bumpy, that Blair Gary was, you know, really flat. It did have a bit of a, a tinge to the water, though. Um, so, look, my, my tip probably today would be would be Blair. If you want to get in and get wet and take a chance, you, that's the thing. You just never know what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, look, I, I follow you quite closely on Facebook because of your wonderful, wonderful underwater photography. And uh, you, you. you had a few really interesting, uh, interesting encounters this week, did you? Yeah, look, we've we've been in the water a fair bit the last the last week. Um, we've dived the last two days, but the last week there's been some really great diving. Um, and yeah, the, the the marine life that we've seen from Flinders and Portsea, um, a few dives at Flinders. I think we've had three there. We've had, um, you know, the, the first male weedy sea dragon that I've I've spotted um, myself. It's always a really highlight, a real highlight to your diving um, when you see the first one for the season. Um, carrying a, a beautiful um, brood of fresh, perfect eggs on his tail. I know there's a lot of been a lot of photographers wow. been out uh, checking that. There's been oh, we had a, a really special moment with a small um, draft board shark, uh, which was really beautiful, dead centre of Flinders Pier. Um, and then the other thing, my my unicorns of diving are pipefish. I absolutely love them, and uh, they are cute yeah. as yeah. They're, yeah, they're really cute. Um, so even uh, the other day when we dived Flinders, it wasn't such great visibility, but we still managed to see two of them on the the, the sea floor as we're sort of scouring for uh, marine debris and other other creatures. Um, so yeah, that was really cool. Um, and the group of ladies that I swim with in the mornings at Frankston, they headed over on a bit of an excursion yesterday to Flinders to check out the Weedy Dragon. And they actually sent me a photo this morning of what I think is a Melbourne skate. Um, wow. which, yeah, you don't tend to see very often over there. So they not only saw Weedy Dragons, they, they saw something that was a bit unusual. So, um, yeah, I think the other really great thing, um, probably that's probably that has brought me the most joy um, the last week um, with diving is not just seeing the marine critters that we, we do, but it's also the interaction with the general public when you exit the water or you're getting changed in the car park. Um, and the, the curiosity of what you see or what you've just seen um, when you've been diving and, you know, filling their mind with wonder, particularly the, the young kids, um, and really providing encouragement um, for them to get in the water and, and experience it themselves. And I think that probably ties in this morning with one of your one of your guests, Andrea Rowe, who yeah, yeah. put out the, the new book, In the Rock Pool, which I'm really, really um, looking forward to having a, a good look through that book. Um, I've had a, had a look at her other one, um, Jumping, uh, yeah, jumping Jetty Jumping, yeah, yeah. which is really cool. So I think that's the, the whole thing, you know, Marine conservation, it really start. It, it does sort of start with kids, and they're going to play a, a really important um, role in that in the future. And that's where I really like investing my time. Um, you know, exiting the dives and having a having a chat with the families and and the, and the kids and and getting them involved. With, yeah, they are. You know, and, and, what we see. and that's so important, isn't it? Having having those chats and, and inspiring the next generation. Thank you, Myra. That was really great. Uh, have a really fantastic dive, and uh, Thanks, I hope you see um, some more uh, sea dragons around. That was Myra. Thank you so much. That was Myra Kelly with the dive report for today. Brilliant. How fantastic. Oh, so much to see. I know, I know. I've got to tell you, so, sorry, <laughs> snorkel story, got to tell you the thing. About, I'd snorkeled on John Brewer Reef, which is about oh, 50 nautical miles offshore last week and um, with my youngest. And the, the – oh, incredible stuff. Like it's actually incredibly – it's the one with the sculptures are. 
you know, the, oh, yeah, the yeah. Sentinels, the Sea yep. Sentinels, which, Ocean Sentinels, which was brilliant. But also the reefs in really good nick at John Brewer. And, um, you know, I could rave on for hours about the fish. But the thing that blew me away was a couple of giant clams different couple of different times and 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 it was very low tide so they were quite near the surface and the colors inside the lips of the giant oh, clams. beautiful. It was like a 60s psychedelic yeah, experience. It was remarkable yeah. and, and they are zoxantelli as well, yeah, just like yeah, in Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. Beautiful. Triple R. And now we are going to cross over to Beach Patrol Australia. So Beach Patrol is a chain of volunteer community groups and you may have seen them clean up our beaches on a Sunday. They're each, each defined by a suburb and postcode and, and T-shirt colour. And they're all volunteers. They raise awareness and empower communities to reduce plastic pollution and other litter in our environments. And they also not just do cleanups but also collect data to support advocacy for better waste practices with their amazing Litter Stopper app. And on the line we have Ross and Ramona Hedifin, who are long-term committee members of Beach Patrol Australia. Welcome to the show. Morning, Farm. Thank you. (laughs) Now, guys, I've been wanting to catch up with you guys for ages because you're always so super busy, um, you know, making sure that most of the waste that we find is uh, going elsewhere, not into the Port Phillip Bay. And I was wondering what's been happening since Beach Patrol started up again after the pandemic. So, look, we've had a lot of groups come back again, which is fantastic. And even during the pandemic, we always encouraged our volunteers to, of course, following the lockdown rules, to go out in small groups if they could or with a neighbor, pick up litter when they were out on their walks for an hour, um, and still log it, like you mentioned, in our Litter Stopper database. So we're keeping the data rolling. But up to date now, we've got 28 active beach patrol groups, primarily around Port Port Phillip Bay, and we also have a group out in Warrnambool. And we now have 17 Love Our Street groups. Oh, amazing. And, and what's, what, how is Love Our Street different from uh, beach patrol groups? So the Love Our Street groups are really focused on trying to pick up litter before it gets into stormwater drains, before the winds can blow it, before it ends up in the water and then into the bay. And it's not, it sounds like you're walking in the street picking up litter. And you're not literally doing that. You're typically on the footpath because, of course, you need to be more careful with the vehicles and bikes and so forth. So people will pick up along the footpath. A lot of rubbish collects on the curbside as well as our open spaces. So parks, uh, any area where there's kind of a grassy knoll or medians, people sometimes put rubbish in there thinking that it might go away, but obviously it doesn't. Yeah, so we exactly. Spots as well, basically from the suburbs. Yeah. Wonderful. So, so um, yeah, those are people cleaning up our streets. And um, now I know we talked about the litter stopper app before, and I'm really curious because you've been collecting the data, which is, by the way, also going into the uh, Victorian government's uh, litter database called Litter Watch. So it's all automatically going in there, which is fantastic. Um, and I'm wondering what trends are we currently observing um, in terms of litter? Like, what is there anything that's declining? Is are there things getting worse? Can you give us an update on what we're seeing? Yeah, hi, Pat. Um, trending. Look, we definitely we definitely see a lot less plastic straws. Um, you know, they were banned in earlier earlier this year, but they've been on the on the decline for quite a while because of overseas um, trends over, over over there. But we're still seeing a lot of just general plastic bits. You know, bits of film, bits of hard plastic broken up. And those are not declining at all. Um, 
Yeah, we hope after November 1st, the amount of con um, bottles and cans will drop off a lot with the upcoming container deposit scheme, but we'll get 10 cents back. Um, for example, we've collected on our website 40, 48,000 glass bottles, um, 123,000 plastic bottles. Wow. <laughs> 76,000 cans, and you know, those have all been littered. So we hopefully that will decline from... And that, know, that is amazing, years. Ross. Like, that, that's just an amazing baseline to start from to see if this container deposit scheme is actually going to work, isn't it? Like, this I, is incredible yeah, data. Yeah, if you think about, like, the, some of those groups collecting that and they mm -hmm. cash it in, that's like a small car. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I've made some graphs that show how many bottles and cans are being collected per month, and it'll be interesting to continue that graph through November 1st, and hopefully the lines will be come down sub substantially. Yeah, absolutely. That is incredible. And and I really love the news about the plastic straws as well. I mean, the Clean Bay Blueprint um, project from the Eco Centre showed a similar downward trend in the Yarra and Maribyrnong in terms of, of plastic straws, and so it's really good to start seeing that on the beaches now as well. And uh, yeah. and I, th I think you know it, it, it's not just the overseas actions. I think about you know um, phasing out plastic straws, but the local actions. You, you guys yourself have been, you know, instrumental in in getting cafes to change over from plastic straws to mm. paper ones and uh, really reduce that plastic. And it's one of the more successful community campaigns I think that we've seen mm. um, down here True. in Victoria. Yeah. yeah, sometimes just raising awareness. People don't even realize yeah. that they've given a straw. Yeah. You know, so it's just say getting in a habit when you order something. I don't need a straw, thank you. Yeah. Unless you do. Most people don't. So yeah, it's just changing our behavior. Yeah, it is. And but it's part it's paired with, with community action and education, right? Because you guys went into cafes and, and spoke to cafe owners, you know, and, and told them like don't give it out just because. Exactly. Give it out if people ask for it. Mm -hmm. Or if they really need it because of disability or something like that. Yeah, yeah amazing. Yeah. And, Combined, uh, yeah. and sure. I mean, the summer period is coming up. We've just had a beautiful, beautiful uh, weather as well. And what message do you have for people for the upcoming summer period? Because I can imagine that, uh, you know, people going outside again, litter will probably also pick up. Yeah, unfortunately, it does. It's one of my least favorite seasons because of that reason, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I bike this morning. Yeah, the beaches, look, they didn't look as bad as they could have. I think a lot of people were inside somewhere watching a game yesterday. Good. <laughs> Sports ball. I heard sports ball was on. <laughs> but look, I guess the main message is, you know, if you take things out to the beach or out to the park, bring them back with you. A lot of areas do have bins, but the bins quickly get overfilled, particularly, like you said, on a hot day. So putting your litter next to an overfilled bin is not really going to solve the problem because if the wind picks up like it has this morning, for example, the litter gets spread around. So, you know, don't leave anything on the beach. Don't leave anything in the park. Anything you take there to enjoy, take with you so you're not littering. And I guess the other big message is, and we try to use this any time of year, of course, is just to refuse using as much single-use plastic as possible. You know, get a reusable cup if you don't have one. Bring your own cutlery down. Don't get plastic or bamboo ones. We don't really need to use things that are single use. They take a lot of energy to create and the waste that they create is just phenomenal, particularly like you say in the summertime, you just see it. Yeah, and it's completely out of proportion as well, right? Isn't it like for, yeah. for the amount of time we use plastic really and the energy that goes into it? And I'm also not sure that so many people understand the connection between plastic 
and oil. Yeah. You know, like I just, you know, so many people I think we're so used to using plastic that we people have, have not understood that that's oil. It's either refined into petrol or diesel or plastic. Yeah, that's You know, right. like it's, yeah. it's fossil fuel. And so, that's you know, it. I think we've got, you know, if we keep reminding people, it's like, well, you know, hey, do you really want to like carry that around in fossil fuel? Yeah, you know, that's products? right. Yeah. And uh, how, how can people get involved, uh, Ramona and Ross, with, with Beach Patrol or Lava Street? Well, we always accepting, happy to have new volunteers join us. We have a Beach Patrol website, which is beachpatrol.com.au. And from there, you can see a list of beaches where we currently have groups and a list of street cleans as well. We generally meet once a month for an hour. So if you want to join up, just go to the website and there's a join button that you can click on to sign up with which group. Also, if you're in an area that doesn't have one of those and you'd like to join one, Shoot us an email. We're happy to get you started with that. It's roughly about a three-hour commitment maybe every month. Um, and even if you don't want to do it actively with the group individually, we can all make a difference by, again, reducing the amount of litter that we use. People can still use the Litter Stopper entry, excuse me, the Litter Stopper app to enter any data that they've collected. In terms of rubbish found, it can be just, you know, I picked up a bag of rubbish at this spot or actually identifying what items that they picked up. So, you know, we can all be involved. It's all our responsibility. Yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. And, uh, yeah, such such low uh, energy that it, it costs as well, especially when there's lots and lots of people doing it. Thank you so much, Ramona and Ross from Beach Patrol Australia Brilliant. for coming on the show. And we'll catch up with you in a few months' time and see where that data is going after the container deposit legislation comes in. Very exciting stuff. Thanks for having us, guys. Thank you. See all ya. Thank you. Fantastic. How very cool is that program? I just I'm so excited for this good. data to come through now. I can't wait I know, until like yeah, six know, months really in. That straw one is really interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. And not surprising, but but it's great to see that playing out. Yeah, community action works. It does. Triple R. We're going to bring Andrea Rowe in. She's an award-winning children's author, well-respected talent in the Australian children's literary community, wonderful um, writer featuring coastal marine theme for kids. Her picture book, um, Jetty Jumping, which came out by Hardy Grant, came out and it won the 2022 Children's Book Council of Australia Picture Book of the Year for Early Childhood. Her latest book, Sunday Skating, has just been released in Australia, Europe and the UK and is being launched in the US next year. And her new book... As Myra talked about, in the rock pools is actually due out next month, and amid the sand dunes is coming out in twenty four. She's just been awarded the prestigious May Gibbs Fellowship for twenty twenty four, and the list of awards go on. Good morning, Andrea, and welcome to Radio Marinara. I'm so excited to be here as a Blair Gary Beach Patroller and someone that oh. loves Myra's Sea Dragons as well. There so you go. I love the show today. Yeah, we've got uh, celebrities amongst us. Uh, uh, look, we know you're an old friend of Marinara and so it's wonderful. And, and, and as we said, you live down the peninsula and, and you know, you're actually, i got to say, taking a break from a writer's retreat this morning. So thank you so much. So first, congratulations on the long list of awards that you're ranking up for children's thank literature. You. And I kind of have this sense that you must be having to invest in a new trophy cabinet? <laughs> There's certainly a bigger bookcase being required <laughs> right now, that's true. Um, I'm, look, I am so humbled but thrilled that people want to read what I write, but also jetty jumping was a phenomenal experience in that every coast kid in Australia thinks this is their book, 
<laughs> and I'm so happy they do. And it's ignited so many conversations with their parents or grandparents about memories of the coast. And I just think that's such a precious byproduct of a children's picture book as well. I totally agree. And just in case anyone, I don't know how they could have missed it, but in case anyone missed it, just tell 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 us a little bit about jetty jumping. Just you know, kind je- of the kind jetty of jetty jumping. Jetty jumping is really a story about um, the challenge of the childhood and the joy of letting go and a homage to childhood in Australia, our summers in, in uh, our childhood. And it's about a young girl that um, is worried about stepping off a jetty and joining her friends in the water um, and um, what lurks beneath as mm. well. But it's illustrations by Hannah Somerville are incredibly liberating and free and joyful and the colours are what we know on our coastline and look I've been touring so many schools I've just finished 75 events actually touring recently and for jetty jumping I'm amazed by how the schools have adapted it. They're not just using it to talk about um, being brave and stepping out of your comfort zones, but artistically they're using it to interpret coastal artwork. Um, They're using it to talk about language. So it's an interesting book that it's become an educational resource. And I'm using it, I'm often going along with, I have a little treasure chest of... um, borrowed um, specimens from the ranges. Um, it's fortunate I'm married to one. And uh, I sort of go along and I show them um, a skeleton of a seahorse or, um, you know, different different elements. And I always talk about the fact that these are borrowed from parks and, um, you know, um, I, I wouldn't take these myself, those sorts of things. But it starts a conversation. You know, I'm in Dandenong with kids that have maybe never stood on a jetty yeah. or I'm in regional Victoria with kids that have memories of the coastline. So I've really enjoyed um, seeing how people have connected with that story. And, and before we get into, into the rock pool, where do you get your kind of ideas from? Is it literally from your childhood or the childhood uh, that you, your kids, your kids' childhood? Or is it kind of like, is there some kind of deeper, I don't know, you know, passion or inspiration in that? I think any children's author would be fibbing if you didn't say that you mind your own childhood for emotion. (laughs) Certainly, though, look, I grew up in Warrnambool and Port Ferry, surrounded by wharves and jetties, lived in Geraldton in Western Australia for a while, spent a lot of time on the Gippsland Lakes and on the Mornington Peninsula. I'm surrounded by um, watching people step on and off jetties all the time. Mm. So certainly personal observation. Some of it is a memory, but I also really love writing a setting and a sense of how we move through a setting. And in Australia, we move through our coastlines in so many different ways. So I think I spend a lot of time thinking about where is the story here um, of how we interact with the outdoors and the environment. So for me, having been a copywriter and working for lots of, you know, I've worked for lots of not-for-profits and environmental agencies, and I understand that we've got to put people in the environment to explain the story sometimes, Mm -hmm. um, to give it that connection. So I guess I've used that copywriting fundamental with a sense of nostalgia. And I remember mm. growing up on a jetty. I remember being scared of jetties. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, also, I know what friendship is like when you're a young child. And I know what it means to have milestones and um, key moments in your life where this was the summer I stepped off the jetty. Oh, you know, this so was cool. the summer I 
year first went fishing. This was the summer we went snorkeling, you know. So I, I have those memories, and I think that's where lots of rights come from, from a place of memory. And now I know this is, you know, the, the, the new book um, in the Rock mm. Pools, not coming out until November, and so we're not, you know, there's not the official launch of it or anything like that, but mm. which is to come. But can you tell us a little bit about it? What, what, what can oh, we expect? I'm, I'm so excited about it. I'm actually launching it at Melbourne Aquarium in November, which is lovely because um, I was involved with the opening of Sea Life, Melbourne Aquarium, um, and uh, so I'll be dealing with their lovely rock pool educators there, which would be lovely. But in the rock pool, I wrote during lockdown, and my mm. lockdown 5Ks was literally the sand dune and the rock pool. So I spent a lot of time reacquainting myself with the rock pool. It's a sweet little board book starting the introduction of the wonders of a rock pool and why the natural world is fascinating to children. Look, it's also a counting book, so we're building huh. up this rhythm and beat of who a child is meeting in the rock pool, who they're peer- peering in and seeing. So my whole premise of writing books for kids is often to help them sort of evolve from fear to curiosity or from limited knowledge to having an understanding. And in the situation of writing for the coast, it's about, you know, how can I softly, without being too teachery and sciencey and didactic-y, how can I actually help someone build their knowledge of our watery worlds and have that wide-eyed wonder? So in the rock pool is very much let's meet our dragons, let's meet our crabs, let's meet our urchins. Um, uh, and it's sort of taking us through this gentle experience of a family exploring a rock pool in, you know, in a look-but-not-touch way, of yeah, course, yeah. as well. And, and, and same and beautiful illustrations? Oh, wonderful Hannah Somerville. We're on yeah. to our book now together. We love each other. We're each other's muses, I think. Um, but work wives. In the, in the rock pool, we are our work wives. Yeah, in yeah. the rock pool, we'll launch um, a three-part series called Little Worlds. And the idea is it's, I see it as the early educators, the bush kinders, the parents yeah, reaching for yeah, an environmental yeah. book that is, the, is baby's first book. So Amid the Sand Dunes is about, it's almost a, a homage to the song of the sand dunes. Sand dunes sing, you know, mm. so it's about, let's think about the sounds of the dunes. But for me, I think uh, in the rock pool and Amid the Sand Dunes, I'm very proud of them because I live and breathe the coast. I grew up on the coast. Um, I know as a children's picture book writer, I've got an ability to write, but I've also got a responsibility to help us increase global connection and climate awareness. And I can do this through writing books. Um, And if it helps start a conversation just with mum and dad, um, you know, if it helps parents or adults learn alongside their children too, I think that's um, a, a really great responsibility that I'm enjoying stepping towards. Oh, what a wonderful... The music's there in the background, Andrea. We could talk for the rest of the year. I mean, it's lovely. And what a wonderful... I, I mean, that, that notion of writing those, so that, that building block for the kids, but at the same time there's this deeper message about our climate, our coast. And what from, you said, Andrea, I really love, bringing the children from fear to curiosity. Yeah, it's brilliant. That's what it's exactly. all about. What a great place to finish. If I to the conversations, I'm happy to. Thanks for having me. It was great to chat. Oh, well, look, hey, we'll get you back on, um, you know, when the other books come out and keep writing beautiful things about our coastline. Thanks, folks. I really love chatting. Thanks so much, Andrea. Andrea Rowe there, wonderful children's author, local children's author from down the morning peninsula. Thank you, Fum. Thank you, Ev. And next week, loads on. Really cool and I forgot to check. But it's full and it's amazing. And bronze there. And vote yes, everyone. Uh, two weeks. you got two weeks, people. Vote yes. 
Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.